You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and thanks for joining me here on this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight we're going to delve into the archives to talk about wines with our resident wine guru, Ron Forrestal. A visit to Mitchellstown in County Cork reveals links to farming in West Limerick during a conversation with Pat Mulcahy of Ballinwillen House Farm, the only combined farmed organic venison, wild boar and goat farm in Ireland. And then towards the end of the show, Ashleen Moore, head chef of Elbow Lane in Cork, is going to have details about the Market Lane Group's chef sessions with a Catalonian influence. But before that, here's how to get in touch with me at the best possible taste. The email is s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org, as in Queen of Organisation, or contact me via Instagram, Sharon J. Noonan. So let's go straight to our first guest tonight, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Ron, you're very welcome to the studio. Thanks very much. And tonight we're going to the Antipodean region to New Zealand. Yes. Uh, a very well-known part of the world for wine in particular. The Cloudy Bay is the one that comes to mind with me that years yes, ago. Yeah, that absolutely. It would have been very rare to see Cloudy Bay on a menu. And if you did, it, it probably wasn't cheap, but mm. it was a very sought-after wine. Is it still as exclusive or is it easier it, to get it now? That's exactly it. It's not as exclusive as it used to be. Um, it's easier to get. Um I suppose the reason Cloudy Bay worked particularly well is because an Irish company um, called Finlitter is a wine company, a very old wine company based in Dublin, uh, controlled uh, the Cloudy Bay allocation for Ireland, which was literally about 400 cases or 500 cases. I'm talking back in the early 2000s, that kind of time. And uh, people really wanted it. So they spread it out. They sold nobody a case or two cases. They spread out like three bottles, six bottles, a case maybe to really big customers. And then it became um, sought after and people liked it and, and uh, it wasn't cheap. It wasn't that expensive either. And uh, it really worked. And then a new agent took it over about seven or eight years ago. And there was always much more of it available than that. Just that Finlay's view on it was that let's not flood the market with the stuff now. Let's make it a bit more, uh, a bit rarer and uh, then it has an added value. And the other company took it over, then a company called Edward Diddlands, and they imported about 1,000 or 1,200 cases straight away because they thought this stuff sells. And it just collapsed the market for it. It just took away the the mystery, took away the, uh, you know, the people saying, that, God, I managed to get my hands on two bottles of Cloudy Bay, whereas now you could go into a shop and they'd say, listen, I'll drop a case to you, no problem at all if you want it. And how did the consumer hear about it initially? Because it's not like there was a huge advertising campaign behind it that made the, you know, the, the pull effect in the market where the consumer were asking for it. Was it, was it just kind of like a word of mouth amongst it, a certain set? Yeah, it was better restaurants that did it. Um, it was the top, very top-end restaurants uh, had wanted it for their wine list. It was the first Sauvignon Blanc um, you know, outside France that really got uh, the attention that the French products had always got before. Um, it was really premium, yet the price wasn't that premium. You know, it was the same price as a very good Chablis would be or a very good Sancerre would be. It was the same price. Yet it had this real, real uh, rarity aspect to it, which really worked. It was New Zealand. The product is exceptionally good now. Really, really nice Sauvignon Blanc. 
Um, I had a Chardonnay as well and a Pinot Noir, which were less in demand. Um, and the the whole package behind it, um, the winemakers, everything was all very guarded. They were the flagship for New Zealand, um, New Zealand wine, wine of New Zealand, that that brand, if you like, pushed Cloudy Bay all the time as being the one. Now that stopped as well because obviously other other wines came up that in blind tastings and in competitions did just as well. So obviously they wanted a piece of the action as well. So it spread out much more. And I thought it was one of the most interesting things that happened with um, with Cloudy Bay and and Wither Hills and uh, a lot of product, New Zealand products, is that they were the very first to move into school caps, um, you know, 15 years ago when when we had a real issue with things showing up in school caps. They were the first to produce it and gave no choice. You either take it or you don't. That's what they were coming in. And the whole New Zealand brand took it as, uh, the whole New Zealand wineries took it and said, we're going to run with this, we're going to put our best products into it. And that meant that either you bought them or you didn't. Um, whereas if another country had started doing it and put their cheaper products into it and tried to launch it that way, people may have never accepted it. But the way it worked, it worked really well. So. And of course, the screw caps versus the cork is something that we've talked about a few times here, mm. that there's a number of reasons why it is actually better to go for the Absolutely, screw cap. Yeah. You yeah. never need a cork screw to hand for a never start. Never need a cork screw. Uh, funny thing, we were, I talked this with a customer earlier on, and um, the, the customer was an outdoor catering company that did a lot of weddings. And uh, we were talking about wine first, and uh, the lady said it has to be screw cap because they had wine at a wedding a couple of weeks ago where it was cork. And none of the staff said, could open them. Like, they have gone so far away from it that they just should have had to put some guy down the corner opening bottles of wine for an hour or two. Uh, because he was the best one at it, you know, which is a terrible waste of a day. Um, whereas the screw caps that are so easy, you open what you need. Even that day, she said, with the corks, we ended up with 18 or 20 bottles unused because they had to be opened beforehand. You couldn't be waiting to do it at the time. So they're much more efficient. Um, they work perfectly well. The only products that are not going into them are the better red products, really, and the really good white products from France, Spain, uh, Italy are not going into screw caps. They're going to stay in cork. Because it doesn't affect the quality of the product. In fact, it probably enhances it because there's no risk of a bottle being corked if there is no, no cork in it. There's no risk at all. It's like it moves down to an absolute uh, decibel of a percent. Um, in opposed to a fairly strong percentage of the corks, which are which are proven to be very difficult. Now there is other methods as well. There's synthetic corks and, and there's compound corks. You know, which are the ones that are not don't really look like an original cork. They're compound together like chipboard would be to make cork, and they're hard to open because they're not as flexible as the old corks were, and they don't breathe as well. And uh, whereas the screw caps are just so much so much easier. And people look look at home. Look, go down to a shop now. And look at the shelf in, in, a, in a supermarket that has a range of wine and you can count on one hand how many of them are going to have a cork. Now you mentioned Findladders there, which is still going strong, but did it have a collaboration with Nash Wine at a time? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I worked for Nash's at, uh, for, for years. And our, when I started with Nash's in 1999, the uh, original name of that company was Finlander Nash. And Nash would be best known for its minerals. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, best known as Richard Nash, um, who's still in town here, um, has um, had a, a, a number of companies, but one of them was uh, uh, the Mineral Water Company, uh, Nash Mineral Waters, 
uh, also involved in Nash Beverages, which was the collaboration with Heineken. Uh, and then there was a division called, it ended up in Nash Wines, which was a, um, a division dedicated to on-trade wines. Very successful, actually. Because I believe Nash Wines did start to import and bottle wine in the late 19, or yeah. 1800s. Yeah, absolutely. It was as, as early as that. It was, But that was very common now. You know, that was very common. That was an unusual thing to happen. If you had wholesalers like Nash's, you know, you'd have had Donahue's and Wexford, uh, Letts as well down in the southeast, that would have been, they'd have bought in barrels of, um, you know, casks of port and uh, even whiskey casks and bottled on site. That would have been a fairly uh, a normal thing to have done because you wouldn't have had the flexibility from the producers to do it for you. You know, they were happy to sell you a cask or something and do whatever you want to, whereas now the producer wouldn't let you do that. They want to know exactly what's happening to it, as in what bottle is going into, you know, that they're getting the recognition for what's in it, whereas there wasn't as much at that that time. And uh, Nash's originally was just a fascinating story. Um, Richard Nash's father, that company was just hugely successful, like hugely, uh, and a real trailblazer. Uh, I remember being at a, at a dinner once with Richard Nash talking about... Um, um, water, you know, sparkling water, which is Ballygown, obviously, you know, and, and the connection there. But Richard said they were producing siphon water, carbonated uh, water, 120, 130 years ago. Yeah, I, th- I read in 1873, Joanna Nash, who mm. I'd say would be Richard Nash's grandmother or great-grandmother, learned to carbonate water and carbonate drinks, and that's how the whole fizzy side of the business mm. started. But also you're saying about Ballygowan Water there, that the guy, Jeff Reed, that started Ballygowan Water with Richard Nash, mm. he was the man that introduced the small bottles of wine to Ireland under a company called Grape Expectations. Mm, that's right, yeah. yeah. I just read that recently and thought that was quite interesting because, again, that's something we've talked about here on the show, mm. about the small bottles of wine. Like Ireland is one of the largest consumers yeah, yeah, of that. It's one after of the, the only, airlines. Uh, yeah, after the airlines, absolutely, because the airline business has always been there for it. But um, uh, And some festival business and stuff now has broken into that as well in other countries because they need... Uh, plastic or PT plastic uh, quarter bottles are used a lot as they're used in planes now as well and there was a guy on Dragon's Den in the UK I don't know if you saw him where he was doing it's like a wine plastic wine glass mm. with the sealed top with the wine in it I've seen it the, I didn't see it now, but I've seen them about. for sale now the, the, the well I don't think he got the investment from Dragon's mm. Den in the UK but it, yeah, that, that was being done probably about seven or eight years ago there was a product being sold particularly for festivals where you know, it had like similar to a yogurt pull-off top on it. Yeah, you know, exactly. Foil yeah. Top, yeah. And you pulled it off and then the wine was in it already. And it meant they could store them in the refrigeration and, and be ready to go. And there was no glasses and it was a single serve. Um, they looked absolutely dreadful now. But they, <laughs> and, you know, who knows? But listen, it, well, was, it served a purpose. Well, packaging is something that's very important, really. Mm. You know, when they say you eat with your eyes, maybe at a festival, you're not so worried mm. about that. But some of the wines that you've got today, you've one yes. particular wine here and it has a lovely label on it that is textured. Yes, well what I thought was that when, when I picked a few wines for us to look at today, I bought two New Zealand products because just the, the popularity is, is phenomenal on, on New Zealand, Sauvignon Blanc in particular and uh, I brought two Malbecs uh, from Argentina again for the reason that Ireland has just taken the Malbec um, in a ferocious way in the last uh, two years year and a half really I suppose and people have gone from, we've gone from having 
maybe two Malbecs on our list and them tipping away very slowly in restaurants to now we have eight Malbecs, um, uh, one Italian, uh, one French and uh, six Argentinian. Actually, I have another Chilean, that's nine, a Chilean one as well, but six Argentinian Malbecs. And is it mainly South America that they would come from? Well, no, the Malbec is, is traditional South of France grape. Um, it works fairly well in Italy as well and was transferred to Italy. Um, but when it went to Argentina and Mendoza and San Juan in Argentina, it just found its natural home, found the weather that really suited it. And even if you take the, the, the South of France product from the Rhone Valley, where it's traditionally been from, and compare that to the Malbec in Argentina, the Malbec in Argentina is a much bigger product, much more powerful. Um, just the finer weather made it more mature, quicker, um, gave it more sugar content, higher alcohol, uh, but a real, real powerful drink. And not to everybody's taste, we always thought, because it was, it has a little bit of a rough element to it that's not as fine or delicate as Merlot is or Cabernet or any of those. Um, but it's Irish people has really taken to it very well. Very food-orientated wine. But as, as we said already, the, for the amount of sales we're seeing it, it's not all attached to food. People are in bars drinking glasses of it now where they're not eating as well. That's fairly obvious. It must be the case. Because it's the sort of wine that I would opt for if I was having a steak mm, because I've been told it goes very well with steak. It does because look where it comes from. It's coming from Argentina where their you know, meat is, is it. You know, that's the um, vegetarians must have a just a horrific time uh, because it's so much meat uh, so much big cuts um, uh, and fried meat you know barbecued very strong flavoured meat and this is uh, Malbec's the perfect version I bought two Malbec's one from Mendoza which is the um, I suppose the most well known area in Argentina and another one from San Juan which is a little bit over towards more towards Chile um, and close to the Andes and a really up and coming area in Argentina and the best thing about that was the Malbecs is they're very good value. Like both of those are coming in around 12 or 13 euros. So not that expensive. Mm-hmm. But they're at the upper end now. They're at the better end. And it's very interesting that this one, the year I know is on all the bottles of wine, but the year is very prominent on yeah, this one. Yeah, smacked it right out front, yeah, which is, um, now they haven't as much, but uh, the, this for the Luigi Bosca is the producer of this La Linda Malbec. Um, like costing around 12 euros a bottle I think it's a fantastic product big heavy bottle everything about it is good real quality and it's a really smashing product in 2015 vintage of that but a lovely lovely product not in any shops at all and should it be drunk young yes yeah it's not they're not meant like those ones now they make a reserve version of this it's not called reserve it's called a select because they can't use the word reserve in Argentina um, so it's a selected version of this which is a um, much more A for an ageing product and when they're aged this is put into the bottle to be ready to drink immediately as um, soon as it hits the bottle but then they produce other products which are not quite ready so there might be 2012 now of that selected that would be perfect yet when it was originally released a couple of years ago it would have been a bit young to drink it would have been fine it just wouldn't be as good as what it is and why can't they use reserve in Argentina? they changed the rules because uh, Chile haven't done this yet um, reserve means things in various countries. Um, I suppose Spain is the best um, is the best example of it, where it actually means something. Uh, there's a criteria that it needs to fall into, and it's time in oak, time in an oak barrel that gives it that, that allows you to call it. In Spain, allows you to call it a crianza, which is uh, up to six months, uh, reserva, which is nine months plus, and then gran reserva, which is eighteen months plus in the in the the cask. 
Now that that's criteria that you have to follow. Uh, whereas in when it was in Argentina, reservement you just liked it more than the other one. You know you felt it was better than the previous one or the other one, and the same in Chile. And that doesn't really mean anything. So it has no, and it's kind of deceptive for the people who are buying it because they assume that this product is better, where oftentimes it's not. So the selected, a lot of the companies use the word selected, or they might have selection, or they might have different ways of single vineyard where they say it actually comes from somewhere in particular. But the, the, the selected version of this one is an actual parcel where they believe the best Malbec is grown, and it comes from there. So a lot of them are very proactive. They do it properly, you know, they and you would know that, but your average diner sitting in the restaurant wouldn't necessarily know that, just that the price would be an indicator. Yeah, the price would be a fairly serious indicator, like you jump up significantly. So on a restaurant wine list, like that Lelinda would be somewhere around 27 euros, 26, 27 euros, and the selected version would be 35. Okay. The other Malbec then? It's Lunaris. This is from Calia, uh, from San Juan, different region. Uh, if anything, it's a slight bit more easier to drink than the Mendoza ones. It's not as rough around the edges, a bit more refined. Um, but it's really up and coming. And this is uh, we have this in two labels, as it turns out, uh, Lunaris and uh, Cali Alta, because we sell quite a lot of it to the same kind of places. So we have two labels in it to kind of diversify. But it's the same product. Same product inside. Same product inside. Okay. That happens quite a bit with wine. Whereas, um, you know, it's... So you can't... There's a certain bit of... Um, there needs to be exclusivity for products uh, and really you just need to be able to, to manage that and a lot of the time the winery will say well, we have two labels um, for the product if you want we're happy to put them on it yeah so that works very well uh, yeah and I know Nick all of your wines as you said you can't get them in shops because I think whenever you do go out to, to eat if you see something that's mm. on the menu that you can buy in the local supermarket for a fraction uh, yeah. of the price Absolutely. it doesn't it's not a good feeling I, I listen there's nothing wrong with them you know because there's products huge branded products that are very popular and there's a reason they're very popular because they're actually very nice but I think there is an issue you know there's a certain amount of um you don't need to be shoved in your face the fact that you can buy something for 10 euros and that it may be 27 or 28 euros in a restaurant. Like, you just don't need to be really told that. that uh, there's a few products that kind of good, that kind of manage to, to, to serve both. Um, there is uh, Wolfplast is one, uh, for example, and I sell Wolfplast as well. And uh, restaurants still buy it and will not take it off the list because there's such a huge following for it. It's remarkable. Is that because people are familiar with it? Familiar and really like it. The product's very good. Like there's nothing. Uh, the quality is exceptionally good at the lower levels, particularly you know the like the house wine and the one above it. They're very very good products. Um, but then everybody knows the price of it. You know everybody knows that, that product is, oftentimes eight fifty or nine euros in the supermarket on offer. You know there's, there's a certain amount. Now the chance of the restaurants won't be able to buy it for that at all. They're probably paying more. Probably better cheaper for them to buy it in the shop actually, if they thought about it. Mad, yeah. It is. And then let's talk about the New Zealand. Yes. They're both Sauvignon Blancs. Both Sauvignon Blancs uh, from two different areas in New Zealand. Marlborough, which is the area, you know, it's the one that gets all the attention. And then Hawke's Bay, which has uh, been around for the same length of time, but doesn't quite produce as much wine, uh, but very produces really unique products. And this is a product called Elephant Hill. It's a winery owned by German people. Um, they set it up um, probably about 15 years ago now. Uh, in our Nash days, we dealt with these as people as well, and we've started dealing with them again now. 
Um, and the Elephant Hill is, is basically they have an elephant uh, sculpture in the, on the way into the vineyard, a huge one. That's you visited it? Have no, you I've been never there? been to New okay. Zealand, but I'm going to go sometime. My kids <coughs> get through college, maybe. Um, <laughs> but the uh, owned by a German people, they do everything right. Everything is just remarkably done well. And they believe they're the closest uh, vineyard to the ocean in the world because the beach literally runs into the vineyard. The sand is, is right there. And they believe they're the closest. They haven't seen anywhere else closer. And how does that impact on the flavour of the grapes and, and the, the ultimate end product? Well, see, the, the air movement is hugely important for, for grape growing. You need hot days and cool nights. And the sea gives you that. You know, mountains give you that as well. Uh, so a lot of the stuff around the Andes in South America grows particularly well for that reason. Um, but it works really well. Now, there's a salt issue, you know, of course, which needs to be handled as well. You can't allow salt to get in there or water to wash in on top of it. That would be a disaster. So when I mean very close, I mean from 25 feet or 30 feet away from where the beach would start. But um, it's a beautiful setting. Uh, a friend of mine was there, actually. He was over at the, um, at the World Cup, the Ruby World Cup, maybe four or five years ago. And we organised a visit from his customer who bought it. And he was just amazed. They have a restaurant. They have a... Tasty rooms, amazing place. I love the label. We'd mentioned yeah. the label before about the texture. Yes, label. the texture just, the elephant just skin adds something extra to it. It's like elephant skin, is That's it? That's the idea, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, but they want to emphasize the fact it has nothing to do with elephants and there's no elephants <laughs> harmed in this. It's just a texture put on the, on the thing. And the other one is that it was a really unique product. It's called Konum. Um, which is the first uh, from Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc as well uh, first 100% owned Maori Maori owned vineyard in New Zealand now they have a whole uh, wine is one part of what they do they have a whole food mentality as well where they grow vegetables fruit uh, honey uh, olive oil a whole uh, cooperative idea put together all Maori based and uh, but this, uh, this is not a gimmicky product now. This product is winning uh, awards all around it. It's a smashing product and it's fantastic value. A really, really good value. And how much would those wines retail at? That's about €12 Euros a bottle. Uh, that's about 16 now. It's more okay, expensive. yeah. All um, right. The Elephant Hill. The Elephant Hill. Right. But the Kono is about 12 12 50 a bottle. Okay. Very good value. Well, all great looking wines. Thanks a million for coming in and telling no us about them tonight. And of course, forestal.ie is the web address. Yes. If people want to get in touch or place an order, they'll get all your details there. Absolutely. Great Thanks to talk sure. to you as always. Cheers. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by the Taste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, Ron from Forestal Wine Merchants gave us a great insight into wines from New Zealand and Argentina. If you are just tuning in now and you missed that interview, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am. The podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and it's also on the taste.ie. 
the website. Now, still to come tonight, we have to hear from Chef Ashley Moore about the Market Lane Chef sessions with a Catalonian influence. But next, let's go to Mitchellstown in County Cork to meet Pat Mulcahy from Ballinwillen House Farm, the only combined organic venison, wild boar and goat farm in Ireland and the UK. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Patrick, tell me a bit about Ballinwillen Estate. Well, uh, the house where we're at the moment was built first in 1727 for the Third Earl of Kings, and we bought it in 1985 as a ruin. We're living here since, built up the farm from 16 acres now to 162 and we farm about 800 deer and about 350 wild boar for Ireland chefs, restaurants and online sales to the UK. Back in 1985, was that the plan to actually have venison and and wild boar to sell? Well, it was venison first of all and um, once we started researching all that, it took me all over the world to find a suitable animal, a suitable size with enough meat on it. And then um, I always wanted to re-import wild boar because they were extinct for at least 500 years in Ireland. And that was the next plan then. You don't have an agricultural background, do you? Well, I came from a small farm in, in, in West Limerick, actually. Whereabouts in West Limerick? Fina. And you went to Dublin, did you? I did. I did. I was a young man. I was... Sent off to be a policeman, and yeah. then, I, then I became a horticulturalist. And uh, so you were sent to do that. That that was what the family decided for you. Well, or did my, you have any interest my, in farming then? Oh, I did because I was always working with farmers and my father, and we would go around killing pig, pigs for neighbours. And my mother was always making sausages and pudding with me when I was a child, even four and five years of age. We saw all that going on, and it wasn't a funny. It nearly comes back to me. It's the right old age of where I am now. So it must have been a bit of a dream come true whenever you discovered the estate here and, and you bought it and started to build it up. Because yeah, it, it was, it was. Because when you're young, you've loads of energy. And I'd still do it. I, I still have great energy, thank God. Uh, but um, there's a lot of work and a lot of maintenance. And, you know, it's an organic farm with animals. There's, there's a lot of physical work every day and looking after them and minding them and the butchering as well. You know, So it, it's a very busy place. Do venison and wild boar complement each other whenever it comes to husbandry or are they completely different? They have to be kept completely different really because um, the the large wild boar, uh, you know, there's just no competitors with them when it comes to fighting. And uh, then the big stags as well, like they're pretty aggressive as well, so they have to be totally separate. Now today you're hosting a visit. Tell me about the, some of the people that are here today. Yeah, we are, what we're doing is uh, we were last um, in... 2015, the 12th of February, we're 30 years in the venison business. And um, on the 6th of December last year, we were 20 years in the wild boar business. So we thought it would be a great idea for the 50 years to bring the chefs that we deal with around the country here for a day out, see what we do, work with us on the farm, move around animals and and, then savour our food products and savour our wine and just have a social day with them to say thank you for the business over the last number of years. And it is a very social day indeed because there's lots of different activities going on. There's some of them gone on a farm visit and I suppose maybe this is the first time that some of them have actually ever visited the farm. It's a a big thing to get the chefs to come and visit the farm and it's very important for us because they don't have much time. It's very important for us to to meet with them and... uh, get them to the farm because then they can take the farm to the to the restaurant to the place and they'll have an image of the animals that they'll see here today the food 
and uh, we worked very closely with chefs and I'd like to think we have a very good relationship with them and that relationship must be nursed all the time it's very, that, that's very important for us and you've lots of lovely refreshments yes we've um, is it cider going have, past uh, me or? Very, very nice cider and uh, just a welcome hot drink with minimum amount of alcohol just to heat people up on the day and then we have our own wines as well which they'll be savouring as well in the evening time do you make cider here yourselves? No, John, my son John makes mead. Okay. Yeah, uh, which is a very old Irish drink as well. Uh, I don't get involved in the cider. We produce our own wine in Hungary and uh, we bring it in here then for, for, for consumption on the premises and we have a bed and breakfast as well. And you know, we cook meals at weekends for people for groups. So wine and food, you know, they, you have, in my view, you have to have both because they complement each other. And it's, it's a very nice follow-on talk with people. What kind of wine would you like with that? And, you know, it's a very social thing. It, it's, you know, it's, it's, for us, it's very important. It is. Well, you mentioned wine from Hungary, and it's not a country that a lot of people would associate with wine. Yeah, but um, all the Hungarian people have a rich culture in wine, just like, we'll say, in Ireland. Uh, there's a rich culture of, we'll say, food production and that, and all the old people produce their own food and all that. In Hungary, every man has his own wine cellar. And they're fantastic winemakers, and they make fantastic wine, mostly for consumption in the country and mostly for consumption themselves. But like wines that we have here, wine buyers, you know, we very knowledgeable people about wine would say that it, it, you know it, it would pass. You know, so see anything that they have had from France or anything like that. It's, it's made the old way. It's not organic, but it's made the old principles with no sulfurs in it so you know lovely lovely and mild to drink last chance of a hangover well it's the sulfur you see which is a winemaker's medicine that's what does the damage mm-hmm. that's right yeah and tell me what about what sort of grapes what are the grape varieties we produce 14 there? varieties six reds six whites a dessert and a rosé so we go right across the spectrum we say the whites we'd have chardonnay two types uh, oak flavored and um, a clean chardonnay and we'd have sauvignon blanc uh, we have tramini um, Semillon, and then we have uh, Semillon de- dessert wine. In the reds, we have Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and we have a cuvee of those three. We have Cake Francoche, Blue Franc, and uh, Pinot Noir. It's a very extensive list. It is, mm. and they're all very different. You know, the once you get used to the, the wine business, they are very different, like, you know. When you decided to branch into the wine business, was there a lot of research involved in that and different trips? Like, how did Hungary come about? Well, Hungary came about, first of all, we had to go there to get deer and wild boar. And then that, the wine led on from that. But, like, I would have great friends in Hungary over the years, all with their own cellars. And when I say their own cellars, they would maybe a couple of thousand bottles of wine for themselves. But we're a rich knowledge of how to produce it properly. It's not mass produced, you know. Yeah. And just one just kind of folded into the next over a period of time. You had a network of contacts there. And then uh, we'll say grape uh, harvesting is the very same to my mind as hay harvesting. You know, it's, it's, you've got to have the weather for it. and you know, It's just another form of farming. People would consider it maybe a very lofty subject in business, but it's not. It's a type of farming. And simple, you know, it's, there's n- nothing magic about it once you get to know a bit about it. There's nothing much to know about it once you do the ingredients or what are your proper ingredients. Do you spend much time out in Hungary? I do. Um, I do. Uh, and my children spend, you know, they're helping me manage things there at the moment. Uh, they're all grown up now, so they, it, it, 
they're not part of the business as such, but in the summertime they would go and you know, help me a lot there when they get holidays and stuff like that. You're having a banquet now this evening, so I would imagine the wine, the boar, the venison is all going to feature on yeah, the menu. Yeah, it, it will all feature. We'll be starting with some charcuterie that I make myself, a uh, smoked wild boar, and we have venison salami. That will be followed on then by uh, all the different cuts, uh, wild boar chops, uh, wild boar belly. There'll be uh, roast steaks, and the same with the venison. There'll be a broad range of, uh, of food. No vegetarians welcome. There actually, there, there is actually. I think, uh, I think there's two or three vegetarians yeah. in the group. Yeah, and uh, uh, Paul is um, has a big range of veg on there that he's cooking in the falafia, and uh, on the grill as well. Well, in the old days, the falafia was where the fia being the deer, where the um, the pit for cooking the deer, and we. We've that burning for the last two days. It's lined with stone and lined underneath with stone. And then we put the product in and it cooks slowly. That's outdoors. Yeah. Everything that's been cooked yesterday is outdoors on the 27th of January. So it's old traditional it's cooking methods. It's the old ways, yeah. Wow. So how many will sit down for the dinner tonight? Well, it's set for over 60. So uh, And you have a very special room down there that you're Yeah, it's an old hay barn converted uh, with a bake oven in it, uh, which gives out great heat. And uh, it's all candlelit, and the walls are all, there's little holes in all the walls there, little alcoves. The lights will go out at five o'clock, and the only light will be candlelit. And do you find that this is somewhere where a lot of tourists come, or do you also have a lot of local people that would frequent? Mostly tourists and groups of people who come for, you know, for something special. Our food is different. When people come, everything that they have is from the farm. It's all homemade. The bread is homemade, Miriam. And anything they'll eat is from the farm. The desserts, everything is all homemade. Well, as you celebrate such a, an incredible milestone, you must reflect on the past and probably look to the future as well. So what is your vision for the estate going forward? I suppose to, to keep it sustainable because it's, it's, it's difficult with an old house and, you know, a lot of animals and that. It's difficult. To, um, you know, you have to have, you've got to be sharp to surviving farming now and you got to be working very hard and I suppose if we have the health to continue to do that uh, I love what I'm doing you know it's, it's very important for us and uh, hopefully maybe the young fella he's an engineer like he's, he's working up in Galway but he helps me every weekend so hopefully someday he'll have the energy to take it over maybe and if he's not well then that'll be that well congratulations on the celebrations today and thanks very much for having me it's a pleasure you're very welcome You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, Pat Mulcahy from Ballam Willen House Farm shared details about the different farming operations on his estate in Mitchellstown, County Cork. And if you're into mindfulness and meditation or you're looking for a relaxing weekend retreat, Pat is hosting a weekend in November that focuses on living in the now. All the details are on ballamwillenhouse.com. 
If you're just tuning in and you missed that, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am. And the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. And it's also on the taste.ie website. Now, our final guest this evening is Ashleen Moore, the head chef of Elbow Lane in Cork. And Ashleen is going to tell us all about the Market Lane chef sessions and in particular the next one, which has a Catalonian influence. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Ashleen, you're very welcome to the programme this evening and you're going to tell us about the Market Lane chef sessions. When did these all start? Um, it was about a year and a half ago. The, the company has a huge um, emphasis on training and development and um, they kind of felt that there wasn't enough for chefs. We have a lot for um, kind of the front of house things like barista courses. We do grain to glass with the brewery that we have in Elbow Lane, um, wine training, all that kind of thing. So it was, it was to kind of have something there for chefs. So it is a training initiative for the chefs yeah. in the Market Lane group and in terms of training then, they're mentored and the ultimate outcome then is an evening where they serve up the fruits of their labour, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's usually one chef from each of the venues. We have four venues. So it's usually kind of one night a week, but you can spend as much time as you want in the Market Lane kitchen because there's two kitchens in Market Lane. So we had the free use of um, the upstairs kitchen. So free use of ingredients, equipment and time. Um, and all the help you could possibly ask for. Um, yeah, so this one I know is going to be eight courses. I think the last one we did was nine and the one before that was eight again. So the next one is next Monday, October the 1st, and it's a little bit different from the previous ones because there's a Catalonian culinary flavour to it. Exactly, yeah. So we recruit in SET. It's um, a culinary university in Barcelona. Um, and we've done that the past two years. So we've hired four people from there and they've been an amazing addition to the company. Um, it's great to have like culinary diversity, especially for the chefs. Um, so yeah, there's, there's four of those guys doing it and um, it's, it's very exciting at the moment seeing what they're coming up with. So that's next Monday. It's in Blackrock Castle Cafe. You usually have it in a different venue, but you've moved it there because the demand is so high on this occasion. Exactly, yeah. In Orso, we did it, I think it was kind of 28 to 30 people the, fir- the, the first three times. And I think it could be up to 45 for this one. So yeah, that's a, a lot of pressure for, for, for them. It's a lot of guests and a lot yeah. of courses for them to enjoy. I'm reading here that it's an eight course tasting menu with drinks matched to each course by the group's wine and spirits expert. So it it sounds like it's a great collaboration between all the different restaurants in the groups, all the different departments in the in the restaurants and then your Barcelona <laughs> colleagues in Spain and going to Spain to recruit young chefs. Was that in response to the chef shortage here in Ireland? Definitely was. Um, the, we've hired, we hired two last year and two this year and two from last year have worked in, I think, all th- three of the restaurants, not four, and the two that were hired this year are both working in Market Lane at the moment. Um, Tell me a little bit about yourself and your background in terms of where you studied. Did you go to one of the colleges here in Ireland? Yeah, I studied in CIT. I finished my Bachelor of Arts in Culinary Arts 
two years ago now. Um, I did culinary studies. I loved CIT. I had a great time there, but I mean, you know, you start. I started college straight out of secondary school. There was, I think, there was eighty of us in our first in our first year, and I think forty graduated. And was this something that you'd always wanted to do from a young age? Was to be a chef? Yeah, yeah. I think since I was about sixteen, I I didn't really see what else I would do. I didn't I didn't have any interest in anything else. And was there somebody in particular that had inspired you to go down that road, or did this love of cooking? Was it just an innate attribute in your character? Yeah, maybe it was. Food was always a big thing at home, but um, I, I remember finishing my junior cert and, and uh, I had so much free time on my hands and I was watching Jamie Oliver a lot, so I think that kind of got me into it. And when I was 16, then I did my work experience in Ballymenew. So that was a kind of big contributing factor in deciding what I wanted to do. And I'd imagine spending time at Ballymaloo, there's such a great emphasis there on the locally sourced in-season ingredients. And that's something that you're heavily involved in now with the group because you're always looking for new projects for Elbow Lane and you've initiated a honey sponsorship. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so um, we're we're after partnering up with Hivemind. Um, it's a... It, it's an initiative that they, their goal isn't to kind of make money from honey. The goal is to sustain the Irish bee population. So we invested in three hives, and each hive gives us fifteen kgs of honey, and we get we get that um, throughout the year. So that's kind of something we're working on at the moment now, getting that on all the menus in the within the company. Waste management is also a passion of yours, and that was a theme that you included in the last chef sessions. Yeah, that was fantastic. That was such a challenge for all of us. But the the great thing about what chef, chef sessions have done for the company, I think, is, you know, we're all working there. We, we could spend eight weeks on it before it before we do the night. And everyone's involved because everyone sees it because we're all on social media. So chef sessions, the account is um, at chef sessions on Instagram and Twitter. So everybody's looking at it, seeing what we're doing and asking everybody about it the next day. So that kind of sparks huge interest within the company. And we're all like, oh, yeah, did you see what they were doing or that kind of thing? So a lot of those those menu things that we, we put on the pop-up nights have kind of wound up in, in some of the venues, on menus, in different ways. And sometimes do the chefs go really off the wall and do something really wacky? And sometimes, Definitely. It, and sometimes yeah. it works, and maybe sometimes it doesn't work. Can you give an example of yeah. of some of the really unusual dishes that they've come up with? I don't know if I would say unusual. I think this was mad. The first sessions we did, we did a, a souffle cooked to order um, at the end of the meal for dessert, and we did it in pizza ovens and also, and because uh, they they cook kind of flatbreads there. It was like r- ridiculous and totally over ambitious. So we all learned a lot from that. Um, cooking twenty eight souffles to order in a in an oven that is not the same temperature all the way through was crazy. But um, yeah, it's it's totally free experimentation. So like, if if we're trying out something absolutely crazy, there's th- like nobody's there telling us that we can't do it. You know. So there's a great sense of freedom there to really express yourself. Huge sense of freedom. And it's been such so good for anyone who's done it for their confidence. You'd like, especially for my own, I can I can definitely say that. But uh, I know like one or two of the chefs who've done it now, like they have just totally come out of themselves and work 
and they're so interested in food and they're so vocal about that. Lots of young people have returned to, to school at the start of September, the end of August. And next year they'll be doing the leave insert and they'll be deciding what what's the next steps for them. What career are they going to pursue? What would you say to somebody that is thinking about doing a culinary arts degree? I think if you want to do it, totally do it. But it, it is a lot of hard work. But I think luckily now, especially for me, I'm I'm 23. So I've come into this industry at the right time where there's huge emphasis on work-life balance and positive mental health. You know, um, I think if it was 20 years ago, it's a whole different story. And those horror stories that you hear about the industry aren't that present anymore. Well, there's certainly a campaign out there to be more aware about the mental health side of things in the kitchen and yeah. and I think maybe in, in all industries and in all walks of life about employee welfare. It's it's now more at the forefront of the employer's mind than it, than it would have been even just a few years ago. The kitchen environment was certainly one that was or did have a reputation of being quite a volatile area. And I think that's you know, no thanks to the likes of Gordon Ramsay and, and people like that. But if yeah. you grew up with the likes of Jamie Oliver, that's definitely not the approach that he has in a kitchen. So that probably has been a huge help and encouraged you, as you said earlier, watching his TV programmes. Yeah, but like work, work life balance is a huge thing for f- within the company. You know, when we were doing chef sessions, I had an extra day off every week just to focus on that. So like you're given so many great challenges within this company and if they if they see potential in anyone they're they're so great to kind of bring you along and help you like achieve your achieve your goals or you know get as as good as you can be but having having the time to be like yeah I only work four days a week and I have three days off and like you work so much better because of it Absolutely. Well, it's Chef Sessions 4. It's next Monday, October the 1st in the Black Rock Castle Cafe at 7.30pm. Tickets are €75 and they can purchase online via castlecafe.ie. Can you give us any little hint of what is going to be on the eight course tasting menu next Monday? Yeah, so they're they're definitely opening with a cava based cocktail anyway. they're doing like some some really nice Spanish cooking techniques, but using Irish products. And um, you kind of see their influence that they've had, that's had on their cooking since they since they've they've been here. So they're doing um, a Jameson and ginger ale dessert, which I'm very excited to try. And I'm it's my first time going as a customer now, so I can't wait. And they're doing um, they're doing a spacho. They're using pigeon foie gras, scallops, black pudding. So it's it's definitely going to be a very tasty meal. It certainly sounds like it is. Well, listen, enjoy it and everybody else that's going along. And as I said, castlecafe.ie is the place to go to get the tickets. And thanks so much for telling us all about it tonight, Ashling. You're very welcome. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Great to talk to Ashleen and it sounds like a fantastic night. My thanks to her and to my other guests this evening, Ron Forrestal and Pat Mulcahy. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thanks to you for tuning in and don't forget to get in touch with your food and drink news, recipes and events. Email me s.noonan at live.ie. 
I'll be back next week and we'll be looking at the Blossnerin Irish Food Awards. So until then, bon appétit. Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with The Best Possible Taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org. As in, Queen of Organisation. Bon appétit. <laughs>